Welcome to the Things I Wish I'd Known podcast, where guests share learning from life experiences to help others on the same path. Hi everyone, and welcome back to Things I Wish I'd Known, the podcast. It's Sophia Giblin here, your podcast host. And this week, I had the absolute pleasure of interviewing Stephen Robertson, who's the CEO of the Big Issue Foundation. I met Stephen a little while back um, when we were both on a panel talking about charities and charity trustees. And I just found it absolutely fascinating to learn a little bit more about the work of The Big Issue and also to understand that it's not just about magazines. So in this podcast today, I talked to Stephen about all things Big Issue and he shares with me some of the things that he wishes that he had known earlier on in his journey around homelessness, childhood trauma and how you can use your skills and abilities to help other people. So I hope you enjoy. So today I'm joined by the lovely Stephen Robertson from the Big Issue Foundation. Stephen's the chief executive here. Hello, Stephen. Hello there. How are you today? I'm really good, thanks, and I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. So um, I think it's brilliant, actually, to get you on to talk about all things related to the Big Issue, the Big Issue Foundation and all the other things that the group does. Um, so when we met a little while back, um, you explained how it all works, and actually I was really fascinated by it. So why don't we start there? Tell us about the Big Issue group. Okay, let me tell you. So the Big Issue all started and was based on an experience that Gordon Roddick, founder of The Body Shop, had in New York some 28 or so years ago where he was struck by the sheer number and visibility of homeless people um, in uh, the States and the number of people that were asking for money and an individual came up to him and sold him something called Street News and this was really one of the original street papers and it captured Gordon's imagination because rather than just handing out money buddy can you spare a dime he realised he was entering into a commercial transaction and the person that he was interacting with was actually working. When Gordon came back to the UK, um, this idea has stayed with him and he hooked up with uh, the Big Issue founder, uh, John Bird, who uh, now is uh, Lord John Bird of Notting Hill, no less, Mm. but at that time was a printer. And they went back, in fact, a very long way. Somewhat amusingly, they met in a pub in Edinburgh many years before when John Bird was on the run from the London Metropolitan Police for crimes and misdemeanours he'd been committing in the capital city. So a bit of an unusual meeting, as it were, but they they got on well and they really struck it off. Um, John grew up in what most people would typify as a poverty uh, um, stricken family right. um, he left that family without being able to read or write um, had various uh, experiences of homelessness and uh, being entertained at a majesty's pleasure in fact it was when he was inside that he learned how to read and write so not perhaps the typical person that most people would think of investing something in the region of half a million pounds into setting up an organisation but bravely or naively That's exactly what Gordon and Anita Roddick did. And the magazine was born and has always operated on the same basis. Firstly, it's an asset-locked social enterprise, so it's a business, but the money that that business makes goes back into making more copies of the magazine and looking for other uh, routes to help people out of poverty and homelessness. 
the magazine is written by professional journalists. Mm -hmm. The circulation forms the basis of the rate card against which advertising is sold via Dennis Publishing, who uh, sell many magazine advertising uh, uh, that most people would be familiar with. And that circulation is north of an average of about 80,000 copies or so a week. But that circulation is not what's sold to us collectively or the people who are listening to this podcast as in the general public that circulation is the number of purchases made by homeless people or people experiencing poverty and social exclusion who buy magazines with their own cash and they sell them on at twice the price they pay for them so they buy them for £1.25 sell them for £2.50 and they keep the profit that they make So the magazine was set up to give people an opportunity to earn and work and take control of their destiny in a way that isn't committing crime, Mm -hmm. isn't begging, and is in fact a legitimate business enterprise. So that's where it came from. Um, There's probably an average of, let's say, about 1,500 or so vendors across the United Kingdom. Uh, but within the Big Issue, there's just over 70 people. And in the Big Issue Foundation, which I'll explain in a mo, there's 25 of us. So there's less than 100 people compared to 1,500 or so vendors. Mm. And the impression that people have is that the organisation would be very big because of the visibility of Big Issue vendors. But in fact, the inverse is true. Um, and it's unique and it's represented in that way. And it's fantastic because it's all about the work that people are doing on the streets of our country to earn a living. The Big Issue Foundation, uh, moving on, is the charitable arm of The Big Issue. And in simple terms, it's our job to provide services that help you tackle the issues that might have brought you to us in the first place, might have arisen from your experiences of homelessness, mental health, drug and alcohol addiction, accommodation, and it's our job to provide that service that means that your journey that begins with a magazine also incorporates the other things in your life that might well have been holding you back or are barriers to your future. So we do that alongside The Big Issue magazine, and we work in partnership with a host of organisations, getting each vendor to the relevant support that they need, rather than making them come to the support we think they need. Yeah. So uh, uh, this is where we can keep small, and we turn over about a million pounds a year, so we're not the biggest organisation in the world, but because we don't have to do all of that other complex work, and many of our partners are funded on the basis of uh, working with people who are chaotic and hard to reach, we don't find big issue vendors to be chaotic and hard to reach because there's a product that comes out every Monday that they buy with their own cash mm. and therefore they're our customers and not our clients. And they're, they're exercising their own economic choice in choosing to do this. They're not employed by us. It's an opportunity for them. And so our engagement is very different um, with this group of people than perhaps some other organisations are. So that partnership means that they can also uh, work those other organisations can work with our vendors who might not normally get to those services so that's the two elements of us yeah. and then the third part <laughs> is Big Issue Invest which um, if you see the Big Issue is working closely and focusing on uh, a specific group of people i.e. Big Issue vendors Big Issue Invest was established as um, in effect an ethical loan fund so their, their focus is on wider groups of disadvantaged and disconnected people from society who may struggle to get some of their business ideas funded. And so the Big Issue Invest footprint is looking at the wider socially excluded group, 
looking to establish other business-based solutions that will give people an opportunity to change their lives through business, through work, and hopefully in many situations very positively contribute to their community. Wow. <laughs> so it's three distinctly separate things. Three distinctly separate things, but all under the big issue banner. Yeah. Amazing. It's a really interesting model. And I think it, um, what really struck me when we met before is that my my conception of the big issue was that it was a fundraising magazine because I didn't know yeah. about it. And I remember my aunt giving money to a vendor and turning down the magazine because she thought she was giving to charity, yeah. I guess. And I remember you saying that you should never turn down the magazine. Absolutely not. First and foremost, it puts a, a vendor back into a position of almost be, becoming a beggar. And secondly, it's the process of managing your business, of buying and selling, of thinking about how you budget, how you, what you're going to do with your funds, calculating when you want to stop work and what you might be losing by not working. All of those things make the journey of business better, whereas just handing over money doesn't. It's an instant thing, obviously. You know, it's nothing wrong in that sense of handing somebody some money, but actually it goes against the process that people are trying to do. You wouldn't go to... Um, Marks and Spencer and get £80 worth of food and get to the till and go, keep the money and put the food back because you guys are great. You actually know when you're buying something that you should really be taking it. And that's what we always say, because that is what gives people the confidence to know that they can trade. And actually selling a product and convincing somebody to put their money in your homeless hand um, is a huge, um, it has some huge implications for your self-esteem mm. and can really create a sense of positivity that reaches out way beyond the sale of the magazine itself because you've proven you can become a business person. So perhaps you can deal with some of the other things that have put you in this situation. So there's a much more positive ripple effect from buying and taking the magazine than just handing over cash. I think that's such an interesting way to look at it. And since you said that, I make it my mission, if I see a big issue vendor, to Fantastic. buy a magazine off them. And <laughs> that's so brilliant. I also hope everybody that's listening to this podcast who didn't know that will also engage in trading with... Absolutely. Issues. And if you don't even want to buy a copy of the magazine, you still talk to your local vendor and acknowledge their presence. You know, mm. for some vendors, they can be stood on the street for two or three hours and nobody's even said hello or no thank you. Uh, and sometimes people can be quite negative and will say things like get a job when the person is clearly right. at work already and the person that's saying it is actually late for their own job. Mm. So actually there's a huge amount of value just in interacting and recognising people are there. There's a good footprint from that as well. So please buy, please read, but please acknowledge and please chat. It can change someone's day very positively. Love that. Thank you for sharing that. So you've been in your role as CEO for quite a while, haven't you? I've been CEO of Big Issue Foundation now for around 11 years. 11 years. So quite some time. So I bet there's a huge amount that you've learned in your journey. Yes, I've learned, I've learned a huge amount, actually. Um, I think prior to working here, my job was Director of Commercial Operations at Shelter. So I was running originally their chain of charity stores, which went from, I took from about 60 to about 120 across the country. Uh, shelter Trading, which is a Christmas card internet mail order business, and Shelter Training that sells commercially housing and housing related skills into the housing sector. So it was all the commercial work that wasn't fundraising. The mm -hmm. money we were making funded Shelter. It's a very big organization. 
there were probably something in the region of 700 or so volunteers in the shops alone, for example. The attraction of coming to the big issue, but also the strange thing was that I went from a very large organisation to one that was really, really small, which mm. is what I wanted to do. But it's a very different sense when I'm sure you've had the experience yourself in a small organisation where there isn't a lot of infrastructure to do stuff. You have to do things, otherwise they don't happen. You can't blame the marketing department because there isn't a marketing <laughs> department. You have to blame yourself. Yeah. And I can remember getting an email when I was here that, so, so, that really underlined it for me where somebody said, has anybody seen the flip chart? And we, it was like saying, has anyone seen the pen? <laughs> we only have one and we share it. And it was suddenly that moment of, oh, yes, this is very small. So you have to think quite differently about how this actually works. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a funny one, isn't it? Being in such a small organisation. I mean, we're at, um, at Big Issue HQ today and everything is here, right? All the three. Yeah, all the three um, entities are here. The editorial team is based in an office in Glasgow. And then we have small lookup shops, which are effectively sort of fags and mag style stores in uh, places where there are uh, large densities of homeless people that can support those costs and magazines are sold in, for example, London, Birmingham, Bristol, Bath, places like that that have a big homeless problem. That's mm. where we have a small footprint. So that's the distribution or so of the hundred or roughly hundred staff that we have. Mm, got it. I'm sure there's going to be a whole host of things that you can share with our audience here really around homelessness. I think when I was... Um, thinking about interviewing you for the podcast and, and bearing in mind that our audience are very much focused around working with children and educating people who work with children about how we can help them. Yep. Um, yeah, I'm just super interested to hear that some of the things that you wish you'd known and whether they are what they might be. Oh gosh, that's a big question, yeah. isn't it? Um, I suppose sort of factual insight, I suppose, um, particularly gained in my experiences with the, the big issue because Shelter does a huge amount of really good work in effect um, advocating for um, and legally enabling people who are at risk of losing their housing to maintain that whereas the big issue sits in a space with many individuals who have actually not housed and are um, it, not that the two are comparable but in some senses in a worse position as a result of having no home at all and as individuals. Um, one of the, that population of people that we work with has changed demographically over the years, but there are some commonalities and particularly um, experiences of early childhood trauma mm -hmm. can have a huge impact on people's ability to cope and deal with the world. Um, we did a project uh, a little while ago now uh, with a children's author, Kate Marion, who writes um, books that include topics that, as a parent, you might find slightly sensitive to discuss with your 14, 15-year-old daughter, whether that's sexual health, mental health, whatever. It's folded into the narrative of a novel so that you read the book and you talk about it. This book was called Runaway Girl and it was clearly the story about somebody who leaves home and the result of that experience when they become homeless. Mm. Uh, we, I did um, a survey of our vendors when we were talking about um, taking part in contributing as, in terms of a forward to this book and some work we could do around it 
and it became pretty clear fairly early on that actually quite a lot of our vendors had experiences of running away as children. Right. Um, and um, if you take that to its more sort of extreme end, the process, the idea of absenting oneself at a time of crisis can be learned early and repeated through life when presented with other crises. Mm. So one solution is to go away. That might be to leave your home, leave your relationship, leave your job, absent yourself and effectively close down. And certainly there were some parallels there that I think um, you can certainly see the consequences of early things that happen to people in their lives. It's not exclusive. There are many other drivers to it as well, but it is quite a common experience. That's really interesting. So that um, absenting yourself, I've not sort of heard that term before, but kind of not wanting to address or deal or not having being able to. But perhaps deal with a whole complex, you know, m- maybe many of those things. Um, mm. We um, did a small uh, tour um, of some schools um, mm. with the book, and uh, railway children were also part of this project as well, which is a homeless charity set up to, to, to help young people. Um, and when we went into schools, it, through the process of talking about both the book and our organisations, it brought things out in some of the young people that were listening that their teachers didn't know. And I can particularly remember one young person saying that their parents had been arguing so much one night that they'd left home, slept in the park and come home in the morning and nobody knew they'd gone. Wow. Um, and as a for instance... I think you could, one could interpret that as not being able to cope with the situation and absenting oneself with it rather than having the um, ability in whatever way that is to deal or engage with that be- can become a learnt response to situations that are too intense yeah. and therefore becomes a coping mechanism, almost maybe sometimes a subconscious coping mechanism about how you try and deal with life. It's not uncommon for... Uh, some homeless people who get rehoused to find the process actually of having somewhere to be more complicated than having nowhere and that they might abandon a tenancy and it will be discovered that unopened bills, the things that we know we need to do in life haven't been dealt with and the person's effectively been homeless indoors and that they find the idea of not being indoors easier than being inside. So um, there are there are definitely things to take away about the extent of people's life experiences and the kind of influence that can have on people over a long period of time. Wow. I found it really fascinating when I watched Professor Green's documentary on homelessness because there were a number of people who were homeless on the street and then moved into shelter or housing who then put themselves back onto the street. because And I couldn't quite understand the the driver behind it but actually what you're saying is really interesting it's like the I think it can um, I think the, um, sometimes people will say well I have more relationships and people I know outside than I do inside being on my own indoors is not as healthy for me as being outside with other people even though that situation can be dangerous and risky and not good for your health or many of the things you might associate with being outside for sure but actually the fact that it can be 
someone's community mm. can be very important for them. And that kind of relates back to that notion of running away as a child. Mm-hmm. You're potentially running away from unsafe relationships or relationships with parents or caregivers that don't feel supportive or... Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's that's true. And I, I suppose, you know, maybe it's about sort of concepts of what sort of security feels like and what it feels to be a young person needing something from a sort of mature grown-up adult that can't get it. Mm. Um, and one of your options, if, if you can't get it, is to look elsewhere for it. Maybe finding yourselves in finding yourself in inadequate um, relationships in the future, or feeling inadequate about yourself. There is no one truth here, but I think you can see that there are opportunities for one thing to have a knock-on impact for other decisions that you might make later in life. Yeah, absolutely, and I guess it gets more and more complex, kind of the later down the line yeah I think it does and people can develop uh, mental health problems uh, drug and alcohol problems you know, sometimes people will focus more on the sort of drug and alcohol issues rather than the origin of where some of those needs that were unmet were being filled by other things taking your mind off something not being able to think about something only being able to think about it if you've put yourself in a different mental state whatever those things could be the chances are they're further that there is a consequence of something else that's happened rather than the driver itself. I don't think there are many people who wake up and just decide they want to become uh, addicted to some substances. They've got some other issues that are going on that means it's an output from that, as it can be a physical out, physical health output, it can be all sorts of things. So. Um, I think my, my, my point's pretty straightforward and that is that, that lots of experiences, particularly when you're young, will have consequences and if they are significantly negative, the chances are they'll be significantly harder to get over later if undealt with. Yeah, gosh. So the message really is that support early on is absolutely the best. Support early on is, is really important and things aren't always what they seem, I suppose. You know, one of the... You know, as I was saying with Kate's book and our trips to some of the schools was the idea that actually it was by us talking about and sharing things around the book and our experiences, the issues that the pupils had that had gone unnoticed to the teachers came out. Mm. So it's also a little bit of a point about how people professionally look and think about and relate to people because people don't always say what the problem is. Yeah, yeah. And I guess if you've grown up in a scenario, you might not know any different. Correct. Or how to talk about it. Or the fact that when you've tried to talk about it, your life has got worse. Mm. Um, Or that people aren't interested in you or that you're not worthy compared to the problems that they have. So, So there are lots of things that can happen in this space that mean that um, in one way or another people can retreat and don't get the um, love, care and support that might help them make different choices in life later. Yeah. Something that struck me recently when doing these podcasts and talking to people about early experiences, you know, when there's been a positive outcome after trauma, it's often been that there's been at least one adult in in that person's life who has been able to help them see things differently or that yeah. they have felt so safe with. I can really understand that, yeah. yes, absolutely. Mm. 
So I suppose the message as well for people who are working with children, young people, is to be that, if you can, that safe and secure adult that they can relate to, talk to, even play with, just spend time with, feel safe with. I think that's really, really, um, I think that's really important. And I think as, you know, acquired and learned um, behaviour from experiences, those kind of experiences are really, really last beyond the amount of time that you're doing them they can help equip people for life in the future Mm, and I guess you're also building up like almost a blueprint of what relationships can look like positive relationships I completely agree and I think that's um, um, uh, something we would all want for everyone naturally but we have to recognise that it doesn't always happen and the signs that it hasn't happened won't always present themselves so obviously to people Mm. Yeah. So what should people be looking out for? That's a really good question. And um, I think um, there isn't an easy answer. I wish that there was. The most important thing, I think, is trying to establish some sense of relationship that allows a free-flowing conversation to take part, to show curiosity and care for an individual, to have an inquiring mind when you're talking to them, to think about what they've said before and remember that and try and take yourself out of the situation that um, you're imagining for the individual and show that real interest and curiosity in that person so that they have the best chance they have of opening up to you. Mm, Amazing advice. Thank you for sharing that. It's okay. Really valuable. (laughs) So what other fascinating things have you learned or that you wish you'd known a bit earlier on? Um, That's, gosh, okay. Um, (laughs) I suppose one of the things I've always tried to do is um, take myself slightly out of my comfort zone and try things that I don't know what to do uh-huh. or how to do them. Um, so I've, I'd, you know, I've um, as well as help setting up the uh, charity shop group, the ACS. Um, when I came here, I uh, the big issue. Um, I became a founding trustee. Of pathway which is a medical uh, clinicians based approach to helping homeless people with their experiences um, of the healthcare system primarily in A&E uh, as a for instance that is not an immediate area of my skill set I am not a clinician or any of those things but um, that put me into a very different set of experiences with a very um, positive outcome and in an area that I felt uh, perhaps we struggle the hardest at the big issue to make a difference with, which are the health consequences of people's long-term choices. Mm-hmm. In other words, the things that somebody might have done and experienced over a long period of time will have the inevitability of limiting your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can't undo that. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Pathways seeks to make sure that the healthcare system is inclusive and understands and can um, cope with the needs and complexities of uh, some homeless people who are presenting in hospital. And that can also be about overcoming um, stereotypes and prejudice. So uh, they have a program as well where people with lived experience of homelessness will help advocate on behalf of other homeless people to healthcare professionals. And the example that I'd always quote is that um, 
tragically, one guy presented uh, in um, an A&E environment with some fairly um, complex drug and alcohol issues, including some really quite unpleasant lesions on their skin as a result of being a heroin addict. The response to that person was to, in effect, um, deal with them as though they were the architect of their own decline. Um, but one of the people with lived experience who went on to advocate for that person explained that, in fact, they had been imprisoned within the Pinochet regime and tortured. Mm-hmm. And once the healthcare system began to think of this individual as a victim of long-term torture, the response to the problems they were presenting were very different. Anything that you can do, I would always say, that does t- doesn't immediately feel like it's in your comfort zone actually can put you into new experiences that would never come your way unless you went out and did it, even if you don't feel in any way qualified, which I certainly didn't. Um, so that would be one bit of advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For well, definite. Put yourself out there if you believe in something. Put yourself out there if you believe in something, but also... Um, Try something even if you don't think you're really going to necessarily be that good at it. Okay. Um, because you won't know. And if you do find out you're not any good at it, it doesn't matter. You've learned something. Yeah. But actually that process of putting yourself into those situations can be um, just hugely different. Um, so that would definitely be my message. Go out and do things and learn. Mm, learn, yeah, absolutely. And learn from others, I guess. Yeah, and if you don't keep learning, then you sort of stand still a bit. Yeah. I think it's really important to keep learning if you can. And um, sometimes you can look back and it seems like everything is sort of designed and that other people have made much more wise choices than you have. But actually, if those strange occasions occur and you've got an opportunity to take part in something, then I think it's a really good thing to do. Um I always encourage people to, um, without sounding cheesy, you know, give a little bit back mm. to volunteer, to mentor, to become a coach, to, um, as you get older, try and use some of your lived experiences in a positive way that will contribute back to society or individuals. And that will, by definition, put you into contact with people perhaps you would never have met in a million years mm-hmm. and is therefore quite it, it also kind of helps the journey open up in front of you rather than knowing exactly where it's going to go you just go yes I'm going to try this and see what I can add yeah so lovely yeah. bit of advice thank you for that one <laughs> <laughs> and was there anything else that you wanted to share with us um the only I guess the thing I've thought about um I suppose I had to learn a, a lot of particularly here at the big issue is the value in um, sharing and the value in storytelling as as, um, helping people understand things, that you can sometimes explain things to a greater extent when a story will get you there just as quickly to illustrate a point that people can take away and see something more of for themselves. So I guess I've always tried to use the lived experiences I've had to, to, to bring a point forward, but also to explain sometimes how things happen. So, for example, um, one of the things that um, I've developed in partnership with some of my colleagues over the years is a learning and development programme that takes groups of professionals out of their own environment and puts them to work with big issue vendors um, to understand 
a bit about uh, what resilience means to understand what it's like not to be who you know yourself to be but who others think you are mm-hmm. so if you have a job in a corporate environment where you use your status and the title of that job or the name of that organization to help you get to somewhere maybe you're a lawyer and you're wanting to argue with a judge if you're actually out on the street and people think that you're a homeless person you'll be treated very differently this has been a successful uh, um, program for us but it all came about by chance and us me saying yes on a day when we had some people from high street retail bank who wanted a volunteer day and i could make it sound strategic but we didn't know what to do <laughs> so we thought we'd take them out to meet some of our vendors because they're nice people yeah um and on that day the the banking guys basically said look we can sell mortgages and ices and investments to people that have come in to get 60 pounds um, we are very good retailers so we'd love to work with your vendors to give them the benefit of our skills and knowledge and experience so that they're financially better off at the end of the day and we thought this sounds like an interesting idea I spoke to our vendors he said you know well it's going to be a different day but why not it'd be a laugh but of course what happened was those professional high street retail bankers as soon as they held up a copy of the big issue magazine which is a piece of a4 paper nothing more scary than that not a knife not a gun or anything else <laughs> weren't high street retail bankers, they were a member of the homeless community and they were ignored, um, in some instances insulted and uh, generally had experiences which um, for many at the end of that day they came to realise two things. Firstly that some of the experiences they'd had were in fact the attitudes that they had held before the start of the day and they felt not great about that mm-hmm. but and determined to make a difference. And on top of that, the people that had set out to provide professional retail training to homeless people had been the recipients of professional retail training from homeless people. Wow. Which meant that through this journey of change we created over the years, and last year we had over 300 people through this program, people who become personal individual advocates for not only our cause, but actually thinking differently about the world that you see and that your behaviour can still, if modified, make a difference that you never even realise. That, I think, is uh, a great thing that has a life of its own and good things come back through that because other people are doing that work and it's not us, it's what people's lived experiences are like and that takes them on their own journey and that, for me, is a really exciting thing. That sounds incredible. I love that. I suppose it's that um, bringing awareness to the stuff that's so ingrained like culturally absolutely without prejudice and I, and I you know I go back to my point about drift and chance you know unless the person who'd said that at the start of the day had said that it would have passed perfectly well and we would never have done it and we wouldn't have impacted on the range and diversity of people that we have as a result of having developed that program so it goes back to my point about if you want to try something sometimes some amazing things come out of it and if if we'd sat in a room and somebody said, can you come up with a, a homeless person-led learning and development strategy, we'd have been looking at some blank flip charts for all the blank the. flip chart <laughs> for many years. So so the message to me be, be, you know, underneath all that story is that actually from trying stuff, even if it sounds crazy, sometimes 
you know, you, it's fine to learn from your mistakes, but at other times you do things that are even more right than you ever thought they would be. I love that. Well, that's a, such amazing advice. The insights that you've been giving and, um, you know, it's not just on a, like a, a homelessness level, but on like a strategic and uh, organisational level as well, I think is really valuable because I don't necessarily... I think when people think about charity, at yep. times they might just be thinking it's stuff for free, um, give donations and work for free. But actually it's, I think more so is changing. The landscape of charity is changing. I think entirely right. And I think every, you know there, there's so much to be said um, for thinking about it's the people and the purpose that you're working to fulfil. It's not the idea of just doing good yeah. or trying to make good things happen. It, it's actually about how you can empower people to feel as though they're in charge of their own destiny either the people that you're working with directly as a charity or the people that you're engaging with and what they can add to that as well there's a lot more than you can add on on top of money yeah totally so hopefully you're feeling inspired everybody who's listening to um Stephen's wonderful words of advice and things he wishes he'd known so thank you so much Stephen. my absolute pleasure thank you so there you go i really hope that you enjoyed this episode of things i wish i'd known Um, Stephen's a really fascinating guy and I love the work that they're doing at the Big Issue Foundation. So um, kind of the main takeaway for me was thinking about that concept of absenting yourself. When is it that we might do that when things get too stressful and too tough? And let's think about children and young people that we know who also might do that so that we can spot those signs early on to help children have the best life outcomes. The other thing that's really struck me about talking to Stephen is that you know, the big issue is a commercial venture for people who are experiencing poverty and homelessness. So your big issue vendor is just basically a news agent without a shop. They just happen to be a homeless person who is trading so that they can earn money rather than begging to get money. So please, please make sure that when you see a big issue vendor, you buy the magazine, you take the magazine from them and you engage in trading to help then build up their confidence in their business that they're selling. We're all just trying to get by and that that's the way that they are able to do it. So if you don't have change on you, make sure that you do just at least acknowledge your big issue vendor's presence. Talk to them, find out about what they're doing and just be a nice, kind person. Um, if you're interested in the work of The Big Issue or The Big Issue Foundation, you can get involved at bigissue.org.uk. And Stephen also told me that they're doing the world's biggest sleep out on the 7th of December at the Kia Oval in London, which is the cricket ground, raising funds to change the lives of Big Issue vendors through The Big Issue Foundation. So if you're interested in that, go and take a look as well. And thank you so much for tuning in today. And I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.